Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. things in my head so one of the uh, one of the statistics that is included in post-traumatic winning is active duty suicide right so when I look at it One of the statistics is um, and what I've done, I've kind of, I kind of show this is what active duty suicide looks like. And the slide I have used in the past that I'm getting ready to shit can is a, uh, 
is a slide that shows um, active duty suicide, uh, the rate, I should have the number in there as well, but the rates uh, from 2014 to 2019. And what I point out is the trend line is up. Every year it's up. And uh, so, but one of the one of the things that catches my eye that I really don't talk about is this. So by rank, 49% of, of active duty suicide is uh, junior enlisted Marines, E1 through E4. Here's the other thing, though. 43% is E5 through E9. So that's a grand total of 92%. 92% of suicide is from the enlisted side of the Marine Corps, enlisted side of the military. So next question, what percentage of the military are enlisted uh, service members? They are 82% of the total. So they kill themselves at a greater rate than they are, than, than officers do. So why is that? Why is that? Well, I have, I have, my, I have a theory. Right? I have a theory. And if I could, if I could walk you down a path of a, of a, of a lifelong struggle with, with life, um, it would start when we're young. And we're born into homes that are uh, that are difficult. And uh, in difficult homes, you know, often you don't find an environment that is conducive to learning. And then when I when I don't do well in school, uh, do I want to continue on and go to college? And the answer to that is no. I'm going to find a job, and I'm going to. School's been a boil on my ass since I was young. Why? Because I'm not good at it. Why? Because I grew up in a home that didn't emphasize it because it had a whole bunch of other shit going on in it. And, I mean, and, and it's that population that finds its way to the United States military, specifically to the enlisted side of the United States military. And the military has been a place where people uh, can change their life, right? They can... Uh, it's a social and economic mobility platform that I came from this, but I'm, I've changed my life, and the military was part of me changing it. Um, but I also think that uh, when you look at the suicide number, and I think about this stuff, right? Um, I think when you, when you see that, in that higher rate of suicide for enlisted, so d do you think it has anything to do with education? Does going to college make you less susceptible to uh, suicide? Answer, I don't think so. Is going to t college a sign of a higher form of intelligence? I don't think so. I think that, you know, what happens in life to us at, at young ages, you know, often defines, you know, if we're going to be, you know, strong academically or not. And a lot of that, 
uh, happens because of things that go on in our homes. Um, so yeah, so why do we do poorly in school? And then that puts us on a track, you know, to, to not go to college because I simply, you know, I don't, I don't enjoy it. Now, know this. Here's the other interesting thing about this path. Um, when you begin to struggle, you know, you get treated, you get the same pipeline, you know, you get the same treatment protocol as people that have, um, you know, mental health problems. But the, the deal of the deal of the deal of the deal is that you don't have a mental health problem. You just, you're just struggling with life. It's interesting in Viktor Frankl's book, in part two of his book, which I would recommend. I was reading, listening again this morning. Um, there's a thing that Frankl calls existential distress. That means, like, you're looking around in life because of things you've gone through, the way you've grown up, and you're looking for the meaning in your life. You're looking for, you know, purpose in life. And it causes, you know, distress. Well, Frankl says, look, it's not a mental disease. It is not a serious mental illness, though. He also makes the point that we go to therapists now for things that we used to go see clergy members for, which I find really interesting. And and so Frankel waxes eloquent on, you know, a lot of the work that therapists, you know, <laughs> thrive on, you know, are not people coming with, with what are called classic mental illnesses, right? Psychosis, you know, personality disorder, bipolar, schizophrenia, you know, right? Those things. It's people that are struggling in life. All right? And Frankel says, you know, the task then is to guide someone to find purpose in their life. And he said, but all too often, well-intentioned therapists confuse distress for a mental disease and then put people on medications that they don't need to be on. They're looking for purpose. They don't have anything wrong with them. And then he talks about this thing called an existential vacuum where, the, where I, I, don't, I don't have meaning in my life. So I, I think it's really interesting, and I think that the, that, that the difference, and it made me think of this, this delta, this difference between enlisted suicide and officer suicide. And so if you eliminate, right, intelligence as a, as a differentiation factor, okay, if you eliminate that and say there is no intelligence, you know, difference between the two groups, okay, so what is the difference? I would tell you that enlisted service members have a higher rate of trauma than officers do. Now, I don't know that to be the case, but I would hypothesize that. And I would say the reason they don't do well academically, the reason they don't want to go to college, you could trace back to what's going on in their homes. And I would be pretty confident. Would you say, Mac, okay, so what's your level of confidence in that? On a scale of 1 to 10, I'd say 7.5.
that if you if you if you did the study, if you lined everybody up and you and you took the data, you know, at Officer Candidate School and you took the same data at um, you took the same data at um, Paris Island and San Diego, um, what you would find is you would find a difference. You would find a difference in the way they grew up. You would, I, my own opinion, you would fire high, find a higher percentage of trauma and emotional abuse, alcohol abuse, domestic violence, yada yada yada, in the lives of enlisted Marines, uh, than you would in terms of officers, and that accounts for the difference in suicide. So enlisted service members make up 82% of the force, but 92% of the suicide. I would say that that's that's the footnote that explains, or at least that's one of, I, I would say that's at least one of the substantial footnotes, right? One of the substantial footnotes. Now, next question. Um, what about women? What percentage, according to the Department of Defense, women now make up 20% of the Air Force, 19% of the Navy. Wait, 19% of the Navy, 15% of the Army, and 9% of the Marine Corps. I'm looking for a total number. 16.5 in 2018. Women only account for 9% of the suicide. There's another interesting factor for you. And in all the data that we talk about, uh, emotional abuse, alcohol abuse, domestic violence, sexual violence, right? Every one of those categories, women would say they have more of them, more of that in their lives. There's 16%, 16.5% of the force and yet they're only 8% of the suicide. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? That as a group, they have more of it in their lives, but yet they're less likely to commit suicide. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so good morning to you on the 10th of March. Uh, it's Wednesday, hump day, here in the United States. It's raining here in Southern California. Uh, Andy Milburn, the office, the author of When the Tempest Gathers, going to join me here. So uh, I just thought I'd share that with you. I woke up thinking about these things. Um, and then I have to, I, I write myself notes. Okay. And I specifically had post-traumatic winning in my head. What makes, what makes post-traumatic winning different? And I was writing about that. What makes it different is the act of giving is mandatory. You got to share with people. But, but what makes post-traumatic winning cool is that without a whole lot of help, if you'll, if you'll watch the presentation one time, you will take certain things from it that you can help people with immediately. And then when you help somebody immediately, you get a small sample 
right? You get a small sample of that that joy drug, right? You get a, a little sample of that bow wave of joy. For instance, things that people seize on immediately. You're never going to get over the things that traumatize you, ever. So there's nothing wrong with you. That's one of the things people seize on, right? The first commandment, okay? Number two, and this is not in any particular order. Number two, things that you hear them say after watching it one time. Trauma is trauma is trauma is trauma is trauma. I used to, like a lot of people, believe in this hierarchy of, you know, combat trauma was so rare and exotic. But now I understand that it's the way it impacts us. So the vehicle that it comes to, you know, not as important as the way it impacts us. And it impacts us in the same way. So the whole exercise of, of, of saying, you know, whose trauma is bigger is a fool's errand, right? It's all significant, okay? It's all significant. So that's another very basic thing. The next thing is stop faking it and you got to talk about it. Yeah. And so to me, those are, those are very basic things that, that you see people begin to do when they've seen it one time. And then they get the little joy injection. And that happens immediately. And here's and, and I say that to say this. What makes post-traumatic winning special and different is this. With those basic things in your pocket, as you cross paths with other people that you know that are more fucked up than you are, right? And you begin just to have a conversation with them, not to become their therapist, but just to have a conversation with them. And you begin to roll that shit out. You're going to begin to have. You're going to begin to help them understand it. You're gonna. You're gonna help somebody else understand that, and it's going to lead to a really cool discussion. And from that, you're going to derive this joy, which is almost instantaneous from, which is almost instantaneous from. Going to the thing, okay, and and you don't you don't see that in too much stuff that you read about. That I can take these tools immediately and I can begin to have a conversation where I can help somebody else understand it too, and 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 in that conversation I'll deepen my own understanding because it'll make me think about it. Yeah, fucking cool, man. Fucking cool. So. Uh, good morning to you. We'll uh, do a chick, a quick check of uh, a chick quack, a quick check of the news, and then uh, the author of When the Tempest Gathers, Andy McManus, Andy McManus, Andy McManus, somebody different. Andy Milburn is going to join us, and we're going to talk a little bit about Afghanistan today. Get uh, get Andy's thoughts about uh, about Afghanistan. We're also going to. Uh, he's doing a senior mentor thing uh, in the Marine Corps where he goes out and he talks to, uh, uh, he was most recently out in the uh, desert of 29 Palms uh, mentoring uh, uh, Marine unit leaders. And we're going to talk to Andy, uh, get his thoughts about that. And so good morning to you on this Wednesday. The United States Marine Corps Band makes it official.
This is dedicated to. <laughs> um, this is dedicated. Somebody just got their second COVID shot and said it knocked them for a loop. I go to get mine in seven and I wake up on the 18th. Um, so. It's dedicated to a bunch of people that I'm kind of working with on on these um, on these discussions, and and what these discussions about mental health, how we treat people, all of that uh, center on is how do you convey this to people that are going through difficult times? Tell them the truth, give them tools that they can use to not only change their life and other people's lives do though do that in a powerful way that makes sense to them so this is dedicated to all those people that i'm i'm working with you know right now don't screw it up betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win.
time for us to check the weather. We'll check some news headlines, and then uh, we'll talk to Andy Milburn this morning. Afghanistan. The Afghanistan Kabuki Dance. Yeah. Currently warmed up on the East Coast. Sunny in 58 in Quantico. Down the coast at Camp Lejeune. It is sun in 69. Tornado Palms, sun in 52. Camp Pendleton. Cloudy and 51. It's raining. It was raining hard here in Costa Mesa a little bit ago. Dark cloudy and 71 in Hawaii. Clear dark and 60 in Okinawa. Cold in Okinawa. And uh, in Darwin, it's under 80, which is, yeah, that's like cold down there. Dark cloudy and 79 in Darwin. I don't know anything about the weather pattern of northern Australia, but, uh, it seems to be warm for much of the year. Um, in Oslo, that's in Norway, don't you know? They have four weather alerts. It is cloudy late in the afternoon and 30 degrees with four weather alerts. So you know we have to take a look at that. One, I love these things, right? The way that the, the Norwegians say it. Um, disruption due to snow and ice. There's a disruption due to snow and ice from Thursday to late Thursday night. There's a disruption due to wind today and another one on Thursday. So Australia, Australia, Norway's got, uh, got they've got a, uh, They've got snow and wind, so uh, good luck if you're in Norway. Um, currently at the home of Almarine Radio, it is mostly cloudy and 53 degrees right now. A 18% chance of rain through 9 o'clock this morning. Looking for uh, rain and 57 degrees today, the same tomorrow. Chance of rain on Friday and 59 degrees, 62 on Saturday, mostly sunny and partly sunny on Sunday and 62. So all of a sudden, it got cold in California. So that is a look at uh, that is a look at our weather. Um, time for us to check the news. So news headlines around the world. Yeah, I got to get to my news page here. Uh, Stars and Stripes. Top headline is um, a story about uh, the a murder in Germany. The top national story, I would say, um, House passes a bill requiring the VA to offer COVID vaccine to more veterans and caregiver veterans. Um, Korea greenlights a 13.9 spending boost for hosting American troops. So this has been much negotiated and much discussed um, about, you know, our allies footing a larger share of the, of the economic impact for American troops that help, you know, defend their nations. 
South Korea will increase the amount it pays to support U.S. troops on the Korean Peninsula. 13.9%, the country's foreign ministry said Wednesday, following an agreement on a six-year cost-sharing deal. South Korea will pay $1.03 billion this year, up from $910 million in 2019, to support 28,500 U.S. service members there, according to their foreign ministry. Seoul and Washington reached a deal on Sunday on the defense arrangement called the Special Measures Agreement. South Korea has offset the cost for housing U.S. troops under the agreement since 1991. Negotiations over the amount have always been contentious, but they reached a breaking point in 2018 when former President Donald Trump reportedly demanded up to $5 billion per year, a five-fold increase. Previous contracts lasted up to five years, but the Allies agreed to a retroactive one-year stopgap measure for 2019 after failing to meet the end-of-the-year deadline. The boost reflects last year's 7.4 rise in South Korea's defense spending, as well as a 6.5 increase in the cost for Korean workers supporting U.S. forces. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Again, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, the United States needs two things from its allies. One, you have to invest in your your own defense. And look, I mean, at least treat us fairly if we're going to be a substantial part of your defense. And, you know, and, and they don't want to. <laughs> they don't want to. And so it's it's an interesting uh, it's interesting uh, to watch this kabuki dance as the United States tries to shed a straitjacket that it's put itself in, right? Um, after decades of being the defender of the free world. Um, top stories in the Wall Street Journal this morning. Um, all business, GE to wind down finance unit after jet leasing merger. So General Electric, long a huge player in the jet leasing business, right, is winding that, uh, that involvement down. Um, interesting, interesting story about, um, State revenue in the Wall Street Journal today. Headline, states expected the pandemic to bring widespread tax shortfalls. It didn't happen. Well, where's their money coming from? Where's their money coming from? All states are down 0.4%, which means it was pretty flat. Idaho had a 10% increase. Colorado had a 6% increase. Georgia, 3%. California, 2.5% increase in tax revenue. Illinois down a point. New York down 1.5. Alaska, right? And this is, you know, dominated by the price of oil, right? Alaska revenue down 
So interesting article there. The top stories in USNI. There's there's a USNI does one of the things they do consistently is they will post links to reports in Congress. Here's one. Report to Congress on Chinese naval modernization. That would be interesting. All right. That would be interesting. Uh-oh, the Germans are talking a a new a new deal. So I, the Germans who don't have an army are always always I mean to me it's moderately moderately absurd to listen to them. Germany's top foreign minister said today that Berlin is working through a transatlantic new deal with Washington covering global security. That who provides? Germany's going to participate in global security? How? You don't have a military. Economic issues, climate change, of course, and overcoming the coronavirus pandemic, putting aside four years of strained relations between the two powers. Now, let me just let me let me tell you what the basis for this is, that the German economy has taken a hit because of its strained relations with the United States. So in order to restore that part of, you know, their their economy, we will now do the kabuki dance with Germany in public. Heiko Maas quoted President Joe Biden saying, America is back, adding, and Germany is by your side. Well, you're really not. You're like way behind us, okay? Way behind us, right? German soldiers are standing shoulder to shoulder with American soldiers in Afghanistan. That's not true. They're nowhere near where American soldiers are. They're at Kandahar, for the most part, at an airfield, and that's what their token participation. Or there's, there'll be someplace peaceful because that's the German demand. We will participate, but no German's going to die down there. Are you kidding me? Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, I always find the, the, our, So we're negotiating a new deal with the Germans. Thank God, right? The kabuki dance, it never ends. Top story, Mercury Times today. Um, Marine Corps investigating how drug test urine samples were mistakenly mailed to a private citizen. Some of the hard-hitting stories you're going to hear on Marine Corps Times today. Here's another one. Paris Island in peril. Rising sea levels threaten historic marine base. Yeah. So, um, there you have it. That's what's new and interesting, Marine Corps Times. Top stories, right? At the top. Top uh, five stories in early bird today. Number one, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin approves a request to extend National Guard deployment to the U.S. Capitol. An extension of the National Guard deployment to the U.S. Capitol has been approved through May 23rd. Good God, man. 
And you see these accounts of, right? You see these accounts of, you know, uh, what are they calling them, right? The the people who were, you know, who were responsible for, like, the worst insurrection ever staged in the history of mankind, right? Those people, um, you see, like, oh, now it's March 4th. Now it's March 23rd. And it just doesn't end. It doesn't end. And you and you look at it and like, it's absurd. You know, we're some banana republic with National Guards rolling around, right? The, our nation's capital, right? Because, you know, we know, <laughs> we know what's going to happen as soon as they leave, right? The dude with the animal skin on his head is going to show up again. That idiot. Give me a break, man. Give me a break. But it go. I mean, it continues. The, abs- the absurd nonsense, right, that consumes, right, the nation's media and our politicians. We were so much better without 24-hour news, Right. 30 minutes of local news, 30 minutes of national news, right? And let's get back to just living your life, okay? Don't worry about it. They're stupid. It's stupid, right? And the news that brings us to you, they're just doing it for money. So let's, come on, let's go about our lives. Uh, Number two story. Sailors say this submarine has been ravaged by bed bugs. (laughs) Really? The crew of the fast attack submarine Connecticut has been subjected to a bed bug infestation in their racks. And sailors signed to the sub allege the boat's command has been slow to fix the problem. So where does it go? Right to social media. Then it gets national headlines. There you have it. That's the way it works now. That's the way it works. Um, I told you the most powerful man in the country... West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. He decides the fate of the nation. Yeah. If he if he votes no, it doesn't happen. Um, he is undecided on call as nomination is in limbo. Who's call? U.S. Senator Joe Manchin said Tuesday he hasn't made a decision on Colin Call, K-A-H-L's nomination after speaking with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, leaving President Biden's pick for Undersecretary of Defense Policy stuck in limbo. I've reached out to Republicans who've worked with him and who he's worked under. I wanted to get everybody's input, so I'm gathering all that information. I do not have a final decision, Senator Manchin said. Manchin's vote on the Senate Armed Service Committee may be pivotal to advancing Call's nomination to the Senate floor. Several Republicans have said they would they would oppose Call, citing what they view as partisan social media activity and his vocal support for the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. And if panel Republicans vote as a bloc, Call will need Democrats to unify behind him. So there you have it. You've seen other stories about him as the 
Defense Department's policy dude and the controversy that has gone with him. Number four, DOD didn't put enough thought into the cost of border deployments, a report finds. So you have that going for you. Number five, Guam missiles and missile defense top Indo-PACOM commander's funding priorities. It's kind of an interesting little tidbit, right? Funding priorities. You can say whatever you want, but what are you asking for money for? The outgoing head of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command laid out reasons why increased funding for the region is key to counter China. Admiral Phil Davidson stressed the importance of funding to largely supportive members of the Senate Armed Service Committee on Tuesday. He asked senators to fully fund the request for $4.68 billion for the Pacific Defense Initiative, more than double the $2.2 billion approved in last year's annual defense spending bill. The PDI is not only for the coming fiscal year budget. Proposals total $27 billion between 2022 and 2027. That's up from last year's estimate of $18.5 billion. The money would go towards new sensor networks, missile defense systems, and long-range missiles, new missiles, and air defenses, staging areas, intelligence sharing centers, supply depots, testing ranges, and modernized military exercises with allies and partners in the region to counter China. It resembles the European Defense Initiative, which has led to advanced equipment such as the 1.6 billion AG Shore System, a 360 degrees anti-cruise and anti-ballistic missile defense system in Romania and another one being built in Poland to counter Russian military aggression. Quote, I think our conventional deterrence is eroding in the region, Davidson said. Oh, so there you have it. So that in the news. Let me just see if there's anything relative to operational stories. Overseas operations, always a place I go. Uh, B-1B bomber conducts a mission to Norway and Sweden. Uh, Kosovo sends troops to Kuwait on its first peacekeeping mission. How about that? And that's a look at your news. All right. Uh, Andy uh, Milburn going to join us. We're going to talk to Andy about, uh, it's been a while since he's been on. So we'll talk to Andy about uh, what he's got going on. Uh, and uh, and chiefly, we'll talk about, uh, uh, well, we'll talk about Afghanistan a little bit. And then we're going to talk about uh, his role as a senior mentor. And uh, Andy is very positive about what he sees um, uh, in his role as a senior mentor and and his observations. So without further ado, the author of When the Tempest Gathers, Colonel Andy Milburn, United States Marine Corps, right here on a Wednesday edition of All Marine Radio, right here on the All Warrior Radio Network. Hi, I'm Colleen McNamara, and you're listening to my dad on All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. It's been a while, uh, but joining me is the author of When the Tempest Gathers, uh, Andy Milburn, Colonel, United States Marine Corps, retired. Andy, uh, first of all, uh, 
How you doing? What's going on? Mac, great to hear your voice again. I'm back in Tampa. I just got back from 29 Palms, which is a place that I know many of your listeners have <laughs> had some of their happiest memories. Uh, and, uh, and trust me, guys, it has not changed at all. Ken Wilson is, without exception, exactly the same place it was 30 years ago, which is not a particularly nice place. But we can talk about uh, why I was in 29 Palms, if anyone cares, uh, down, down the line. Um, well, I want, I want to ask you about Afghanistan first, but just um, give everybody a thumbnail. What were you doing in, in 29 Palms? Yeah, so the Marine Corps now runs something called the, the warfighting exercise. So it's basically in two parts. And the first part is, looks like uh, what a lot of us remember as a traditional CACs, um, and then became kind of the uh, half of Mojave Viper, you know, where you send your squads and platoons through the range 400 series culminating in company live fire attack at range 400, which I always thought was just a uh, ju- just a great evolution. Uh, and then you go into the, you know, the battalion, like a, a battalion attack and then uh, a battalion defense and then in this case, up to a regimental, uh, what they call a regimental assault course, uh, which was a combined arms attack. So all of that is, will be very familiar to anyone who's, who's gone through a CAX. But then the second half of MWX involves force on force play. All right, let me just paint this broadly. Uh, so you get, you take uh, the good guys, right? The good guys are typically two battalions and a regimental headquarters, and then you have odds and sods, attachments, logistics, artillery, what have you, you know. So it's a full-up regimental, uh, it's an RCT, essentially. And then for the ad for the adversary force, typically it's going to be a homegrown 7th Marines battalion, as your listeners are well aware, 7th Marines is, without a doubt, the best, the greatest regiment in the Marine Corps. So you take one of their homegrown battalions uh, brought up uh, in 29 Palms, they know, you know, they know the area, Uh, you give them a a range of um, uh, attachments, and by the way, both sides are fully equipped with aviation, Uh, they have aviation and support, rotary wing, fixed wing, ISR, uh, and then capabilities across what we're calling the OIE, the um, operations in the information environment or multi-domain operations. Okay, so uh, with the exception of cyber, there, uh, no, actually there is a little bit of cyber play. Uh, there's play in the electromagnetic spectrum from jamming, signals, intelligence, um, direction finding, you know, all, all of these capabilities, uh, both sides have uh, have full access to. And so for the first time in probably in Marine Corps history, you've got a full force-on-force, peer-on-peer exercise taking place for almost a week in 29 Palms. Uh, and it is, it, it is really a good workout for all involved, and particularly for the commanders who learned some hard lessons um, about just about generally, you know, about uh, some of the old lessons that we, that we constantly having to learn about uh, planning, uh, planning on the fly, um, uh, but also about how to operate in a multi-domain environment when uh, you're, you're worried about your own emissions, um, everything, every time you get on the radio, you make yourself vulnerable. 
Um, every time you move, you're vulnerable to attack from the air. I mean, we just haven't operated in these conditions before against a thinking enemy, not metal targets in the Delta Corridor. Uh, you know, an enemy who's constantly, who knows, knows the area and is constantly trying to attack your center of gravity. So, well, if yeah, you, uh, that, man, if you great, think that if anybody... So uh, my role is, you're going to laugh, okay, because you remember me as a snot-nosed lieutenant um, when, you know, you had to show me some of the basics, like how to dig a cat hole, uh, how to brew coffee, you know, in the field using hexamine, how to uh, how to sleep without the patrol leader finding you, all these things that I learned from you. Um, but, but, uh, but now... Uh, I'm in that position where um, I'm in good company with four or five other uh, retired colonels and a retired general. And we go out to the field with the units. So, uh, you know, I'm at battalion level and we spend a week in the field with them, uh, which is just an awesome experience because every time I've gone in the field previously, you know, you have all these responsibilities. Now my responsibility is to kind of mentor uh, and and be a sounding board for that battalion commander, uh, which is which is terrific. You know, in just a couple of observations, very very hard environment to learn in. Uh, but one one thing, and this gets to a point that you and I had just before I came on air. It it makes me optimistic, Mac, about current status of the Marine Corps and the future of the Marine Corps. And then I get, and then I get on the phone with you, and I'm you know I'm I, I'm. I'm thinking, wow, this is this is the institution I was proud to serve for 31 years. But then I get on the phone with you, and you're like, "Oh, woe is me! The Marine Corps is turning to shit." Um, you know, it's we, we it's it's staffed with politically correct careerist nabby pambies. Uh, you know, the the Boy Scouts uh, have have more have better, stronger adult leadership. On and on, and and so I go from being a real optimist to just starting to despair. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I hate to, yeah, I hate to, I hate to spoil your little fantasy uh, with reality, um, but uh, but it is what it is. And and you know, we could talk about that at a different time. But uh, um, yeah, I have a pretty interesting little pr- viewpoint of the Marine Corps because I've, you know, I've done this show for five years. Um, I spent a lot of time around it and I have a lot of people who talk to me, a lot of people who send me stuff and, uh, and the Marine Corps has some leadership challenges in front of it. And, um, but that's, that's for a different time and place. I, I want to talk about your, 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 uh, your desert experience, but I, but before I do that, do that, I want to get your thoughts on Afghanistan. Um, President Trump was unassing Afghanistan and, um, and we were, it looked like on a path to leave that to be settled by the Afghans, oddly enough. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on, uh, on President Biden now seems to be reengaging, you know, not so fast uh, and all of that. Um, how does this end, Andy, and, and does it end well? Your thoughts? Yeah, Mac. I, I think uh, I I think, but I don't know because you often just turn against me on whatever course I argue. But I think we're probably on the same sheet of music, you and I, on this one. Uh, a lot of conflicting thoughts and some emotions. Okay, so number one, let's get the emotion out of the way for all of us. Uh, the the fact that that there is such a heavy 
Afghanistan is associated with a heavy cost. And I know I've heard the counter argument. So actually, it wasn't that much of a cost. You compare it to Vietnam, you compare it to Second. But the bottom line is we're looking, nevertheless, at a cost of several thousand just U.S. lives, let alone Afghan lives, uh, but U.S. lives. And, uh, and, and that is a heavy cost, regardless of numbers, if you are saying that the net result is going to be very little. Okay. Um, but I, again, as you and I have talked before, nothing that this government does or any administration does is going to get those lives back. And the, the more that we, and I'm using collective we, the U.S. government tries to angle for some greater leverage, uh, the, the worse things become. The bottom line is that nothing in that sunken cost is going to give us um, particular leverage going ahead. That is just a sad fact. Um, but here's, you know, here's some thoughts. Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, use an undoctrinal term. We need to unass Afghanistan um, because viewed from the point of view of national interest. All right. Just let's, let's step aside from emotion, national interest. Um, very clear. The reasons why we went into Afghanistan, arguably we achieved our objectives there within, you know, within a year, Arguably, there, there could have been a, a, um, a concerted effort and uh, put against the commensurate resources to, to make something of Afghanistan less than a Jeffersonian democracy, but more than a shithole, all right, <laughs> you know, some level of stability. Um, but here we are, you know, 21, 22 years later, not, not a lot of progress in that time. If anything, you know, Taliban is, is gaining ground. And I think, sadly, it is what it is. I'm not just simply throwing up my hands on that. I'm saying, again, you have to look to our national interests. Is there the prospect that an organization, that Afghanistan will again become a safe haven for units that, for organizations that are able and willing to hurt the United States? Okay, number one, Unlikely, even with the Islamic State there, very unlikely. Why would they use the Islam, uh, Afghanistan as a base? And number two, um, the way that we, the United States, conducts counterinsurgency has changed exponentially in the last two decades. We no longer need to, to flood the country uh, in order to, to try and ensure stability. We can, you know, with uh, um, exquisite methods of intelligence that we have right now and of strike uh, and using special operations forces and by, with, and through uh, partnering capacity. Remember that the, you know, one of the greatest success stories in Afghanistan was partnering with Afghan soft. Um, so what I'm saying here is going ahead, uh, we can reduce, certainly reduce the cost of involvement uh, and, and, and still keep skin in the game um, through, uh, you know, intelligence, through security force assistance, things that our partners and our adversaries, uh, cannot, cannot offer at, on the, the same quality and the same scale, because of course we have to be wary of other actors waiting to step in who are not necessarily, um, going to represent our interests, Pakistan being one, China being another. So we need to hedge our bets, but we don't need to do it with boots on the ground time to, it, that's the bottom line here, Mac time. You know, they, let's be let's be smart about this. Let's not just stay in the game because we have this absurd phrase borrowed from Vietnam of of peace with honor, et cetera, et cetera, because those phrases are meaningless uh, in, in light of the, the people that we've so lost. So let me make you the Secretary of Defense, uh, Andy. Um, what do you recommend to President Biden? You know, President Trump has drawn us down here um, and um, and now. 
you have limited cards left to play. Um, uh, you know what? Uh, what do you do? Yeah, I, I, here's what I'd start with. I, what, I would say, what, what do you hey, recommend? boss, let's let's get our heads out of the game of talking about numbers, uh, and and let's talk about what is the in order to from a policy perspective. What do you want out of Afghanistan? What what exactly do you want? And then it becomes a it, again it becomes a comprehensive plan, which has never occurred. It's never occurred in Afghanistan. Okay, I but, don't but, care what anyone but, says. Okay, so at, at, at the eleven at the eleven and a half hour. No, no, I'm I'm saying as we scale down. Right. So right. I'm 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 not saying hey let's do another surge. It's, I'm saying as we scale down, how do we do this smartly? How do we how do we still uh, maintain some influence with the Afghan government? Okay, through you know provision of aid, but very very targeted aid. Okay, so aid but what do you what what are you going to recommend as a sector? Oh, as as the SecDef? Yeah, you're well, the SecDef. Number one, I would say, all right, I, I would say, hey, step away from discussion numbers. Let me give you a recommendation. You tell me the in order to, all right? I can make up an in order to that aligns with policy objectives, all right? So something along um, maintaining security presence that will contribute to, you know, regional security acceptable level of, of instability or violence, unable to spill out of the borders, certainly unable to touch the United States. Okay, I'm paraphrasing, something along those lines, okay? That is what we want out of Afghanistan, right? Don't be a, don't be a, a vacuumous sucking shithole that, that just keeps the region in turbulence. Um, and, and don't be a, yeah, but a, I'm asking you for a recommendation, man. And, you, and, and you're, and you're teaching me, you're teaching no, me a class. My recommendation to Biden was, let me come up, let me come up with a military, uh, the military side of this solution that meets your requirement without a heavy footprint on the ground that allows you to say, Hey, we've disengaged from the wall, but we haven't disengaged, disengaged fully because that is, that makes no sense at all. Does that make sense? So instead, what's happening is, are we leaving? Are we not leaving? Are we leaving? And the numbers are all about troop strength. Since 2009, discussions about Afghanistan have always devolved to troop strength instead of, what is he in order to? Yeah, I, don't, I, I, don't, I feel like you're not answering my question. No, I'm totally answering your question. And, I, and, and it's so okay what, to answer so what are you question. Gonna, so what, what are you going to recommend to the President of the United States that, that he maintain a soft, presence and an aviation presence in the region and yeah and with the calling card with the the calling card that says nation i would give him a specific course of action i would say or option i would give him two to three options that's his role as secdat that's what i'm asking but that's what i'm asking you and you're just you're giving me a discussion about what the secdat should do and i'm asking you to be the secdat and say what would you do okay hey boss give me let me give you two or three options that'll keep that that'll not involve U.S. troops in direct combat uh, that will help ensure regional stability, assuming that other other uh, components of U.S. national power are also involved in this diplomacy. And, uh, no, and, no, 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 no. So, so okay. So give me one there, Mr. Sekdef. <laughs> okay. Um, so a, a focus on... Uh, Afghan soft and counter-terrorist forces, um, developing them by, with, and through everything from professionalization to enabling them um, to perform in combat, 
so in other words, still still providing ISR uh, intelligence and fires support, um, but without a, a company on the ground. Um, so yeah, a, a soft footprint presence, um, heavy intelligence focus that does not require necessarily intelligence personnel on the on the ground. Just a uh, um, you know, some kind of fusion center within uh, Kabul, uh, and in intelligence, um, U.S. intelligence um, uh, center there too, um, and a uh, and maintaining uh, the permissions or authorities coordinated through the Afghan Afghan government for uh, precision strike. Got it. The um so no no presence in the country or very small. Soft yeah, small. Maybe maybe we're providing trainers, you know, on a on a base. Uh, but 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 again, um, I, I think you know Afghanistan no longer one of our priorities. So footprint, conventional troops. There is just no real strong reason to do that if we can get allies to do the same. Got it. Got soft, it. on the other hand, uh, and I, this isn't just because of my background the last ten years, but soft, you get a lot of. You, you're, you're able to shape uh, your partner nation force a little more to to uh, to align with specific U.S. national security objectives. So, in other words, you get more bang for your buck, right? Got it. Got it. Now, let me ask you this. So, I'm, I'm going to be the president, and I look at you, and we're sitting in the Oval Office, and I say, uh, Andy, um, you know the predicament the Taliban or, or the, the federal government is in right now. Um, you know how strong... The Taliban appears, and and uh, they have essentially been on the march for the last two years. Um, what do you think this buys us? Do you think this buys us anything, um, or is is what we're doing akin to Operation Frequent Win? This is the beginning of the end of of what will be the Afghan federal government. Um, yeah, give, I mean that's actually a really good question. Yeah, give me your, hey, give me, so you know, so Mr. Shekdev, give me your, yeah. your your based on everything you've seen. Um, yeah, and I've had uh, uh, these uh, these guys, I know Jeff Kenny, whatnot, who said they believe that uh, Tim Lynch that you know ultimately. Uh, we will go, Afghanistan will go back to the system that it had, which was the Taliban will run the countryside. Warlords will run the cities like they, they, they did before, and they will come to some agreement. Do you think that's where this is headed? And the answer is absolutely yes. If the only solution we're looking at is a military solution, if we're looking to maintain U.S. influence in Afghanistan um, through a you know handful of uh, soft dudes out there, then no, that's wrong. Wrong approach. Um, so I would say this is going to be a diplomatic and State Department heavy lift. You can poo-poo that, but it's about it definitely has to be. Okay, so first of all, um, I, I, as far as diplomacy is concerned, the Afghan government have to understand that some rapprochement is going to be necessary with the Taliban. It's just a fact of life there. You know, it's, it's just the same way as it is in Yemen with the with the Houthis. Uh, but but that doesn't necessarily mean then that we concede everything to the Taliban lock stock and barrel they're bad actors um, but but maybe targeted financial aid 
of certain sectors uh, with uh, with with leverage, you you know, with with understanding that in particular areas where it makes sense that the Afghan government be brought in to uh, negotiate um, a, a way ahead with the Taliban. That may be by functional area, or maybe by geographic area, but there needs to be there needs to be some discussion and there needs to be some understanding collectively that the Taliban are like it or not stakeholders. I mean, they survived for 20 years, right? They fought. I, this is no, I'm not a Taliban fan. I'm just saying that they, this is, this is a fact on the ground. We didn't defeat, we didn't do away with the Taliban. You know, it's just like, uh, it, the, the fact that we won military engagements, um, to paraphrase, uh, um, Oh, shit. Who's a Vietnamese general who told... Um, Giap? Yeah, Giap, who said, uh, yeah, it, it is true that we lost most tactical engagements, but that is also irrelevant. And that's probably what the Taliban would throw at us now, too. Right, 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 because right. they're still in a strong position, right? You can't argue with that. No, no. No, and so... Who do we, so, who, so, you know, so who, who are we hanging... And so hanging really, Andy, so... so we would use American power to keep the Taliban uh, at a negotiating table and letting them know that, look, it's not going to take anything for us to sortie all of our aircraft and to, to, you know, to just lay waste to whatever you own. And we could do that for a long time if you will not negotiate in good faith. That's so we would use our, American power and economic power and diplomatic power to those ends, along with our allies, France and Germany, which are encouraging us to stay and stay the course. That is, that is about as good as we can get out of this at this point. Yeah, I, I think so, man. Got it. You know, you more optimistic than me. No, I don't, I, I don't think so. I, I think, you know, obviously, you know, I, th- I think it's the curtains coming down and the yeah. Af- Afghans will ultimately decide. You know, the, you know, the question is, you know, how long, you know, you know, again, I thought it was uh, I thought it was a, a bit of comedy with, you know, Angela Merkel, you know, you know, saying that, you know, she hopes with the election of President Biden that the United States reconsiders staying in Afghanistan. To what yeah. end? And, and, and if you're so concerned, Angela why don't you send some more battalions down there? Why don't you send your soldiers to the most contested parts of that country? I, I, I couldn't agree more. But, Mac, I think there's, you know, we've got to look at uh, several factors that play in this aside from just the military part. And that's been that's been a failing, right, uh, consistently. I mean, remember uh, the the rhetoric that surrounded one of the many surges in Afghanistan. And, and, uh, this was replicated in Iraq too, in 2007, 2008, that everything that the military was doing on the ground, uh, with a surge, with a concerted effort, effort to tamp down violence, to reinforce Afghan or Iraqi security forces, all of that was done quote. And this quote was actually used in Afghanistan by a Marine, three-star general, um, and, and I mean, he was not incorrect in saying this, but he said, to buy breathing space. But the missing part, of course, was a plan to use that breathing space, and uh, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's where we are. You know, that's where we are right now is it, it, we've got to cut bait militarily. There's, there's just nothing. There's nothing to be gained 
um, by by and and plenty to be lost by maintaining a presence there. Aside from the opportunity lost of what we can do elsewhere, um, but. Uh, they, there need to be other players, State Department. Okay, it's very easy, I know, from a military point of finger at the State Department. But I saw, you know, I read Antony Blinken's speech yesterday. I think uh, this new administration, again, I'm keeping this apolitical, a new administration is at least rolling in with a concerted effort to bolster the State Department and to make diplomacy once again a a, uh, a major component of U.S. national power. If that is indeed the case, then Afghanistan is going to be a test bed. Uh, for for intelligent use of uh, f- focused use of um, uh, economic aid combined with leverage combined with diplomatic efforts and uh, that's not vague talk diplomatic efforts focused on a couple of things one is uh, to, uh, to to negotiate uh, some key points um, within Afghanistan itself you think about education of women or some of the um, some of the advantages that women have seen in the last decade or two that they did not have under the Taliban rule. So, in other words, combined with uh, economic effort, there are, there are perhaps things that we can do um, bringing the Taliban into the negotiation as, as stakeholders to ensure that not all are of the gains of the last two decades will be lost. Okay, um, number one. Number two is focused on regional partners or other, not even regional partners, NATO, NATO allies. Um, since there is no longer, uh, arguably the, you know, the risk of, uh, losses from combat, um, there is much to be gained in terms of, uh, you know, prestige of, of playing on the, uh, on, you know, on the international stage, um, for countries to step up the plate to offer to, to be involved in training the Afghan military going ahead or in economic assistance or whatever it may be. Um, but the United States has to be very adept here about not simply ceding territory to our adversaries, to the uh, Chinese and, and the Russians. Easier said than done, I know, but that's, you know, it, it's it's not beyond the realm of the possible. We, we've, seen, we've seen this country capable of great diplomatic feats. I mean, in the past, look at, you know, the, uh, the aftermath of the, uh, of the second world war, look at, you know, although it's, uh, although the administration was, uh, somewhat controversial, look at, uh, what Nixon and, um, uh, Kissinger, uh, achieved in the sense of a rapprochement with China. Uh, I get it. You know, you can argue either way, but the point is that they, they they were they they were uh, moving things on the world stage and same thing with um, George Bush Senior in 1990 prior to the you know the the war to liberate uh, Kuwait bringing that coalition together um, we're we're looking at a another another period of American diplomacy and hopefully this administration is serious about uh, about really bolstering that I, but i don't think andy that at the end of the day i don't think the taliban i think the taliban will brush that aside what they see is they see somebody who's looking to get the hell out of there and they'll go sideways with us as long as we want to go sideways they're right their their horizon is much longer than ours they've yeah. been they've been doing this dance we will wait you out you will get tired of this we know that and you will leave and then we will ultimately settle it ourselves and so I, so again, it'll be interesting to see how long, you know, we do the kabuki dance, right? And that is, you know, you know, the European Union leaders 
you know, begging the United States to come back and bring your bring your big military, you know, because we want you to stay for some reason. And uh, and and so I, I and again, I, I say that with great pain, you know, having spent a year of my life there and having watched uh, young American Marines and sailors and soldiers die there. And uh, that doesn't sit well with me that as it, I'm sure it never sat, sat well with uh, with guys who fought in Vietnam or guys who left Lebanon and, and the other places, you know, that, that we've suffered casualties and not achieved the end state that we were looking for. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see how long the Biden administration, um, you know, uh, you know, does the kabuki dance. I, yeah, I again, yeah, I'm, I'm just I, I'm nothing but pessimistically pessimistic. I, now. I I share some of your pessimism, and here's why. Okay, in a in a perfect world, not perfect world. If if the United States had uh, had professional dip, high, it was used to hard nosed diplomacy. All right, um, you know, uh, carrot and stick, uh, being able to to back things up, being willing to have the political ability to back things up, but also um, having having uh, front runners in diplomatic world who had that ability, emotional intelligence to combine tact, cultural awareness uh, with really good negotiation skills. Um, I you, know. Are you saying we don't have that? Uh, some of your listeners are saying, oh, yeah, we do. We've got, you know, I mean, <laughs> you, you know, you, you and I, Brent McGurk or whoever it may be. And it's uh, I, I would say that, you know, I'm not talking about particular personalities. I would say, no, we, we definitely lack that. We definitely lack that. I mean, look at our diplomats at work generally. I mean, they, it's very, it, it's, it's, not, it, it's not particularly deft, D-E-F-T, uh, uh, diplomacy. You've got to combine both factors uh, here. It's not simply just sending a message. It's, it, it's being able to to integrate it with uh, a carrot and a stick and, um, and, and understanding the personalities, what is wrong? And I'll shut up on this in a moment, but what is wrong with really understanding who are the lead players within the Taliban? Okay. What are their influence points? How to influence them? I mean, even going to the personal level there and the, on the negotiation piece, Hey dude, I understand that, you know, you, you're responsible for this or that, or you control this or that Here's what you can do. Um, but listen, if these are these are kind of the no no pass lines for us in the United States. And if you cross them, I'm not saying we'll pull back in on the wall, but you're going to see a lot of the economic benefits um, here disappear. You know, so linking things to results, we are not good at that. I don't care what anyone says, we are not. We uh, fail time think, and time I think, again. I think that's just a historical fact. Um, yeah, initial conditional aid, right. um, awful. Right. No, it's discouraging. Uh, our inability to use the elements of national power to achieve our ultimate, you know, desires when when we either participate in or initiate a con conflict, and uh, and you ask people to sacrifice the only life they'll ever have in their life, and then you you walk away at some point saying, "Yeah, we we didn't get there. You know, yeah. we're re we're really sorry." Well, I you know, I, it's just, I think for all of us that that have done that. For guys that have done that in American history, pretty empty feeling, and 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 that's, I mean, that's probably one of the great understatements of all time. Pretty empty is not even adequate. So, so when I say hard nosed diplomacy, I I, you know, I read I read through Blinken's speech yesterday, uh, and and I thought it was good. I thought it was a good speech, but there was 
one phrase in particular that concerned me, and it was his point number three. Okay, and I'm um, just uh, his point number three was um, I'm looking up. Uh, we will we will renew democracy. Okay, so that is a very vague term. We've seen what renewing democracy can do uh, in in Iraq and Afghanistan. So. I, so I, we, I, hold on, I, hold on. So we will renew democracy. Renew democracy. So you know, don't don't get me wrong. There are American American values are a real thing. We should stay, we should certainly represent and stand up for those principles and values. And Blinken mentions that. But when we start getting into terms of renew democracy, and democracy uh, has been such an elusive form of government for much of the Western world over the last two, three hundred years, and arguably the United States itself didn't start practicing democracy until very recently in its history. Um, so to pursue that as a foreign policy goal is is perhaps concerning. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but that's what I mean about lack of hard-nosed uh, diplomacy is really not understanding perhaps the realities of the world that some countries are just not ready for democracy. They don't have a functioning middle class, for instance. Um, maybe, you know, they, well, and so I mean, you start it's pretty by, stupid, by, Andy, it's pretty stupid in that part of the world that doesn't, I mean, doesn't understand Thomas Jefferson, right? Doesn't understand the whole concept of majority rule, minority rights, to use the term democracy, it's just they look at. I mean, you've experienced this firsthand. They look at you like, "What are you talking about?" Like, if you if Give you're not on the winning the, side, you better get in the I, corner. I want my kids to eat. Right. I want you know. There's right. like there's a hierarchy of needs. Right. Democracy is and and, and not the, the important thing to them. And the strong people survive, and that's you know. Yeah. So so what a card does the United States have to play when you know when women's rights groups in this country. Watch what goes on and what will certainly go on in Afghanistan as that shit gets rolled back and say, we want you to do something about it. This is wrong. Right. Yeah. And, and, and look, the Taliban, they, if you watch what they say about stuff like that, they say they will have all the rights a woman can have in the context of our, you know, Afghan culture. Well, <laughs> let me get my secret decoder ring out for you. Right. Sure. Yeah, you're going to burka up, right? And you are not going to be an equal member at the table because they just aren't. That's not the way they do it. You well, know? you're right. And, and so it, all these all these speeches and things that, you know, that, that Blinken can give, who's the audience for that speech? You know, yeah. who's no, the, I, you know I, what I'm saying? If, if the audience are, you know, fellow democracies in the Western world, and he is simply saying we all reinforce the bonds with, you know, our fellow democracies and relationships are important to us, that is good. Right. Uh, but but these vague terms um, concern me uh, because they're either meaningless or they lead into uh, idealist idealism-driven foreign policy, which uh, is – you know, you can represent the values of the United States and foreign policy, but if you start being driven, driven by idealism, then that's when things start going off track. And we saw that again, whether it's idealism, doesn't matter what political perspective, but pure idealism. And if you were a betting man, what would you bet on? Is this just, is this just gobbledygook? I, I, I don't know. I, I, and that's not me just hedging bets. I mean, Blinken, Blinken, by the standards of the Obama administration, was was quite a uh, 
he was quite a hardliner on some things. I mean, he did. He and Sullivan uh, were, um, were wanted the United States to take action after Assad used gas. Remember the the infamous red line. Uh, that Assad crossed. I mean, Blinken and, and Sullivan were saying, hey, we've got to take action, otherwise no one's going to take the United States seriously. And they have, you know, Blinken's been a relative hardliner on China and, um, you know, various other things. He's not a he's not a shrinking dove. He's not, by no means, you you know, do typical, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's again, a political comment, but he's not, he's not your typical Democrat in that respect. But again, I would like to see some more substantive comments. And, and um, Biden yesterday in Munich, I believe, in the speech he gave mentioned democracy again, like, you know, 14 times in 20 minutes, I think Dave Maxwell said, as someone mentioned this morning, that's a lot. And that's concerning. Let's get past, let's get past all the kind of vague terminology and talk about what we're really going to do in the world. And I'm all for the United States being a force again on the global stage and for really using its diplomatic uh, might, for want of a better word, you know, diplomatic power. Why not? And let's, why do we always default to the military? And we've got many other uh, ways that we can influence, we can create uh, legitimacy and influence. Got it. Let's talk about... Uh... So give us your thoughts on uh, your senior mentor gig out in uh, 29 Palms. Um, what, yes, what, what, did, uh, what did you specifically spend your time doing and what are your thoughts on, on it? Yeah, so terrific experience, actually. Uh, I, I was brought in uh, by a company um, who contracts with the with uh, the Marine Corps, with uh, MAGTAF Training Command uh, and Marine Corps Training Operations Group to provide uh, mentorship uh, subject matter experts for the marine warfighting exercises on the desert. Just very quickly, for the benefit of your listeners, who I know represent several generations of the Marine Corps, and not just the Marine Corps, total outsiders. So the Marine Corps has always banged this drum about training its its commanders, uh, actually all ranks, uh, in, in combat arms, in the in what we call combined arms right that is that is the integrated use of all fire support artillery air fixed wing rotary wing um infantry on the ground direct fire weapons systems um mortars and uh and artillery uh to achieve effects on the enemy basically put the enemy on what we call the horns of a dilemma blah 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 okay so that has not changed. What has changed now is our potential enemy is far more adept than, um, than say, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or even the Islamic State. And we're looking at potential adversaries peer-to-peer, whether it be Russia or China or uh, Iranian threat network. Um, it, 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 we're no longer looking at control undisputed control of the air you know even if you don't factor an enemy fixed wing rotary wing aircraft you're just talking about drones we we know we have seated uh we un, unbeknownst to us we've we've seated that the air domination to uh, anyone who uh, has the ability uh to to purchase uh, off-the-shelf quadcopters and and arm them and or, or program to direct fire um and that's been you know they've been used against us in Iraq and Syria since 2015, and and uh, and also against the 
uh, Emiratis and the Saudis. No, no drones. So we lost lost control of the air. We've lost control. We can no longer communicate with one another um, with impunity. Every time that we key a handset, we make ourselves uh, subject to uh, jamming or tracing. When I say key a handset, of course, now we use um, various uh, uh, different communication systems, computer software based like MUAS, uh, but nevertheless, all detectable on the electromagnetic spectrum. And so anyway, these exercise 29 palms, they pitch a, a, a regimental combat team, regimental headquarters uh, with two battalions, typically reinforced, you know, with all the usual odds and sods, tracks, LIR, not tanks, of course. Um, sorry, I had to throw that in there. Um, you know, reconnaissance, ISR, artillery. And uh, so they're the good guys, right? And they play against an infantry battalion uh, taken from the 7th Marine Regiment. Of course, your listeners will all know and accept that 7th Marine Regiment is by far uh, the best um regiment in the in the marine corps so you take a battalion from that regiment lives in 29 palms and they they are the enemy and uh they also have isr they also have aviation they have everything that friendly forces do and it's a uh, free-flowing five day to a week exercise across you know the that the massive uh, training area there at uh, 29 palms and consistently what has been happening in the five or six exercises to date is that that adversary force uh, is to to use American terminology tends to hand the exercise force its ass um, yeah I mean not not without taking casualties casualties itself but the learning the learning objective here is that it's really tough to to operate well in that environment it's one thing to to far away at uh, Metal Hulks and the Delta T, it's another uh, to find yourself maneuvering um, under uh, under risk of uh, attack from the air, um, unable to communicate without uh, pinpointing your position. Uh, you know, it's, a, a, again, quite a different environment. And using all capabilities now that we have, uh, not just artillery and, and air and all the things that we're used to, but also... Uh, assets in the electromagnetic spectrum from cyber, whether I mean changing ones to zeros, cyber, you know, uh, offensive cyber operations, or just using the internet or cyber as a, a means to shape the, uh, the, the battle space um, to deception, to jamming, signals intelligence, direction finding, um, you name it. These are all things that the lowest tactical level battalion and company uh, we're now having to integrate into operations, and it's a. It's and, and when a, you think about this, we haven't done this since the early '90s, right? With the, when the Soviet Union used to be around, and we used to prepare for that. And if you, right. if, what yeah. you're talking about is, I got a chance to participate uh, in uh, in a rotation up at Fort Irwin, where the Army had the whole thing wired electronically, and you put sensors on your vehicles, and and you did you went up there and did force on force. It was an unbelievable experience i played an independent bdrm reconnaissance company with my lar company and got to operate with the op4 and those guys knew how to do it and and i'll listen to this andy we um we had to operate in the clear because that's how the russians do it and um so um we had different codes and when you'd hear somebody yelling the code or, or broadcasting this certain code word 
you rolled to that frequency. So if they were yelling Mississippi, you would look down and say, okay, that's, you know, that's on number five. And you'd pop over there. We did a, we did a meeting engagement. And during the meeting engagement, we changed frequencies 13 different times during the attack and still won. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It was, so, it, it was you know, amazing. It's a mind to keep uh, switching and then, right. uh, yeah. Ab- how, to fi- how, to fight, how to fight through the jamming initially. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And, and his, uh, you know, his other things we're learning. Well, there. and just my, my point, though, is that it has been so long since we, as an institution, as we as an organization, um, considered peer-to-peer conflict and what goes with it and, and, and how good you have to be right? Lest you get yourself whacked given now the, the, uh, I mean, even then, you know, what, you know, when you considered fighting the Russians, you knew they would have an incredible supporting arms capability. So although it didn't, it wasn't the precision munitions, it was the big red BM 21 template on TAC war. Most of you won't know what I'm talking about, but Andy does. They put that son of a bitch on the table. You're like, Oh God, what happened? Oh yeah. Everybody dead. Because they just shot a brigade five at you, <laughs> right? What? Yeah. Right. And so it's been since the early '90s since we've even considered this kind of warfare. Yeah, very. I mean, it, it's very true. And and now, of course, we're taking it to you know a much more involved level than than uh, the army ever did at NTC. And I was involved in those rotations to Mac. Uh, when I was a rifle company commander stationed at 29 Palms in the late 90s, we used to go to NTC and join Op 4. And it was certainly, we learned a lot from the way the Army did force on force. You know, the Marine Corps was then the premier force and still is, you know, for combined arms, live fire combined arms. No other organization um, can can replicate what we do, probably because we had the assets, we had the training area, and we made it part of our creed, right, our ethos. Uh, but now... Um, as we adjust to force on force, we're realizing that we really need to, and I hate to say this, we really need to pay attention to our own doctrine. We need to start paying attention to what we say in our own planning process. There is a reason why the Marine Corps has problem framing, number one in its planning steps, and no other service does, and that is because it's supposed to be a commander-driven dialogue with subordinate commanders, rigorous about the problem, about the whole environment, about the enemy, back and forth, um, boss, I, Hey, let me just picture this. This is what you want to happen, right? Is this what success? Yes, that is what success you are. The main effort Here's why the main effort is if, if I cannot communicate with you, here's why, how main effort will shift. You know, all these conversations need to take place before we can have implicit communication. We, we hear the term implicit communication. We think, Hey, I, I know my guys, we're going to just have it. And I'm going to give them a two line intense statement and they will be fine for the next four days. But things change rapidly. You can't simply not communicate. Um, you build that implicit communication through problem framing, but then you have to have a plan for command and control, uh, a plan for command and control, which in- allows you, remember the OODA loop, you know, John Boyd, it allows you to observe, orient, make a decision, pass that decision to your subordinates and, and, uh, and for you to collectively act. And you need to communicate to do that as things change. Implicit communication, even bolstered by problem framing, will only take you 24 hours or so. And that's part of the problem is that we now, you know, and, and it's really hard for these guys. I mean, they, they're facing a challenge that I never faced as a battalion commander. Uh, and, and by the way, Marine Corps is in good hands when it comes to battalion commanders. My God, um, terrific 
quality of, of guys we're getting now. But it's a hard task to bring all this together. And and some of the basics, some of the fundamentals uh, we've lost over the years of counterinsurgency. But it's tremendously rewarding. I loved, you know, this makes me sound sad. So give me, give me a couple, give me a couple. To be on the desert again. Give me, give me a couple takeaways from the experience. Yeah. um, Okay. So, uh, number one um, takeaway is that we we don't have a good appreciation um, in this environment of how. We keep needing to work on tightening the kill chain. What I mean by that, I mean that from the time that something is seen to the time that we're, we're hitting it with, with bombs or, or even a non-kinetic response, that so we're having effects on it, um, it, it we, we have to flatten that kill chain so it's, so it's as fast, rapid, and flexible as possible and not subject to, to jamming. That means any sensor should be able to contact any shooter on any net or maybe not any net, but on, you know, on, along given pathways with alternates and several ways of doing things. Um, we still try and keep things too controlled. Uh, that's, that's one of the observations. Um, and, and that slows down friendly kill chains. And when you slow down your own kill chain, of course, you make yourself vulnerable to the enemy. Um, we're, we're totally, we just do not understand how visible we are at night. We just do not understand, you know. It, so we're lulled into this sense of uh, of of uh, false security by the darkness yeah, during the, our years of fighting in counterinsurgencies, and so the enemy may have uh, rudimentary night vision uh, capability. You know, in the case of the Islamic State, they certainly had some, uh, but nothing like appear. Um, so now. What, what we're coming to realize is we're actually more vulnerable during the day, especially in the desert floor, than we are at night. And during, uh, at, uh, more vulnerable at night than we are during the day. At night, you can pick up thermals. You can pick up dudes on thermals three to four clicks away, you know, on, uh, from uh, armored vehicles, uh, tracks. Uh, helos like cobras are killing machines at night. They can pick up anything on the desert floor. Um, the enemy... So, uh, you know, the battalion I was with, a Hawaii-based battalion, super battalion, just an awesome team. Um, but they had uh, PVS-14s, which you probably remember as being like a new uh, night vision goggle, but is now seriously outdated. The new ones are the PVS-31s, and those things are a game changer. So if your enemy has PVS-31s, they definitely have an advantage, as they did in this case. So um, the mistaken feeling that you can move at night under the cover of darkness and you're still, you're secure um, is, is absolutely, it, it was proven to be wrong time and time again. And then you add to that if you start emitting, especially if you set up a headquarters and all the layered emissions that that headquarters has means that it can be pinpointed and identified uh, within minutes. Um, and it's just, you know, there's, you've got to be smart in how you work around that. Again, you need to communicate, but you just need to work out what, what you do to do that. So those were uh, – the other thing is um, vulnerability generally to the air. You know, we don't realize how uh, – we didn't realize how vulnerable we, we are to being picked up by ISR or, or aviation. You know, for once we are – we're feeling like it was being a member of the Taliban um, or, or Al Qaeda or the Islamic State, um, uh, trying to move around undetected, and uh, just very difficult. 
first of all, you need to come back on um, and update us uh, as as you continue to do this. How many times would you get out there a year? Um, so if I so if they keep bringing me on, uh, three or four times a year, and then the the Marine Corps now runs a command ground commanders course, and it's run by McTogg. And uh, I haven't yet sat in on one. I'm going to the first one next week again as a mentor. Really excited to be doing that. Uh, I see a lot of uh, among the colonels, the active duty colonels who have been brought in to talk to the class. I see a lot of old friends, really talented dudes, guys like Matt Reed, uh, Matt Good. Some of your um, listeners may know Matt Good has uh, 7th Marines right now. Um Matt Reed was selected for one star and, and hopefully we'll be pinning that on soon. Very well deserved. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. The boy, the, you know, some of you may remember the previous commander's course in Quantico where we talked about, uh, you know, uh, key volunteers and, um, how to, how to run a uh, golf tournament and raise money for this and that and why sexual harassment is bad. And, you know, so you spent basically, I, and, and how to throw a social event and how to stay out of trouble when you use some money. And uh, you, you learn, spend two weeks learning that the Marine Corps has a lot of trouble, problems and that you now are going to be part of the solution. Um, but so, so it's nice to see a ground commander's course that is focusing on, uh, on leadership and maneuver warfare and, just, and really preparing guys for that, for that battalion command. All right. Well, we won't wait so long to talk to you next time, Andy. First of all, thanks for doing this. Appreciate your comments about Afghanistan. And then, uh, and then again, uh, uh, the Marine Corps kind of back to the future, right? Um, going back to a, a, a style of warfare that we did uh, throughout my uh, young life as a Marine and then, uh, and then uh, got away from and did another type of warfare and, and now back. So learning those lessons again. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking about this shit. Hey, hey, Mac, it's always a pleasure. And don't be afraid to meet Jeff Kenny and I in San Clemente for a beer uh, <laughs> sometime in the next few weeks. Jeff's pointed out that uh, you, you tend to run away from these social events, but you, you need to come back into the fall. Only because I'm working. If I were not working, I would be more than happy to meet you two fools. Sure. So sure. I will make sure we, we get that done. But Andy, thank you very much for the visit. Thank you, Mac. All, right, all, right. all the best to your listeners, too.